It's good to clap now until you hear what I'm going to talk about. And then what just happened will feel strangely uncomfortable. So let's pray. Our good God, thank you that you, in your wonder and love, delight in us. But the noise all around us is loud, and the distractions are many. So would you give us the courage to look for you and to hear you in the midst of it all? I pray that you would show up even now in this place on a mountain most people in the world don't know about, but you do. And so we pray in confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. Amen. So I want to talk about Pharisees, right? I mean, it's a funny thing because even if you're not a Christian, pretty much all of us know that Pharisees are bad, right? The last thing you want to be is a Pharisee. They're hypocritical, judgmental, angry, unkind. No one wants to be a Pharisee, do you? I mean, no one's like, yeah, that's me. I love it. I'm crushing being a Pharisee. Now, here's the thing about Pharisees, some of which you may know, some of which you won't know, the problem was not that they were ignorant. They were quite learned. Their problem was not that they lacked conviction, and it was not that they were immoral. And here's what may surprise you. Despite stereotypes, the Pharisees actually believed in grace. The Pharisees were very clear that they believed God's covenant to Israel was gracious. Their problem wasn't that they didn't believe that God could be gracious. The problem was that they had separated God's grace from his commandments and from their ongoing pious practices. They began to think of God's grace as a past reality rather than a present experience. And that misunderstanding of grace started to distort their present experiences, not just in how they related to God, but how they related to their neighbor. And it created a divided self along the way. Here's the thing, if you look to Jesus, he seems to think that the Pharisees lack, you could argue it this way, the Pharisees really lack wholeness and love. They lack wholeness and love. There's this Pharisaical distortion and it creates a, this division between their internal and external worlds, right? Between their, their public and their private self. But I'm curious how divided you might feel right now. I don't think it should surprise many of you if you're thoughtful about it, but I would argue that our current American moment is fostering a ton of pharisaical impulses in just about all of us. You might be hard-pressed to find another age as self-righteous, opinionated, and zealous as ours, combined with this intense experience of always living under the gaze of others. Virtue signaling. You've heard of it. Maybe you think it's funny and it's other people. Virtue signaling is a serious example of this problem. 
we say things, we do things to send up the clear signs we're on the good team. We're not the bad people. That's not me giving a cryptic statement about just Democrats or just Republicans. I think there's virtue signaling going on all around. And by the way, I think there's Pharisees in all of these groups. No, no, this concern, though, is also not just for influencers or academic elites. It's for average teenagers and stay-at-home parents. All of us now feel this pressure to publicly send the signals of our virtue, whatever we think of as virtue. And the consequences for many of us is that we are really struggling to live whole as whole people, right? There's this, this tension, and it produces in us, and you can just feel this inside the church, outside of the church, it produces in us a people who are ever more fragmented, isolated, depressed, worn out, and very often angry. And in the process, it undermines our social network. And what I'm curious about this morning is, could there be another way? How might we, not just they, how might we move from fragmentation to holism? How might we move from virtue signaling to actual virtue? How might we move from talking about God to actually enjoying him? So with this in mind, you guys do public reading of Scripture, you can handle this. I'm going to read you a long passage of Scripture. And what I want you to do when you hear it is I want you to take a deep breath. And I want you to hear these words from Jesus. It's the center of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, 1 to 21. It's a word of warning, but it's also a word of promise. And I want us to listen to Jesus as he points us to a better way. So hear the reading of God's word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners they want to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. But pray like this, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be done to be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will, what? Reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the little bit of time we have together now, what I want to do is I want to think about three things from this. In light of this problem, the pharisaical impulse, I want to think about performers and prizes and practices. Performers, prizes, and practices. And with each of those, there's really a question, right? For whom do you perform? For what do you long? And how can you and I seek wholeness? So let's think about performers. For whom do you perform? For what audience do you perform? It sounds ridiculous, really. You're like, dude, I'm just living my life. What do you mean performing? But just think about how, how many of you, if you're honest, feel like you're constantly watched. You're constantly under the gaze. You're judged and compared. I've been around long enough. I know it can be overwhelming. And as you know... We live in an age where everything is expected to be done for public consumption. And honestly, as for the students in this room, you're of an age where you've probably never known anything different. I mean, from gender reveals, right, to the drama of being a teenager. From your early 20s through retirement, now everything is done for public consumption. Whether it's Instagram or TikTok or whatever, Don't you wish sometimes you could just ignore what other people thought about you? And I know many of you are trying by giving up social media. Good job. I mean, I'm not, I don't care if you're on, if you're off. Be aware of the dangers. But here's the, here's the thing. This is not a new problem. This is not a problem just because of TikTok. Think about this for a second. I just think we, we failed have you, some of you are from small towns, you'll know exactly what this is like, but try and imagine living in a small village in the first century A.D. If you grew up in a, in a small village in the first century A.D., you would feel the weight of constantly living under the gaze of other people. Whether good or bad, they had opinions about your decisions, about how you carried yourself, about your humor... In other words, long before there was Instagram, people lived before a watching world. And funny enough, that's not all bad, right? 
part of that public connection is part of a good instinct. Aristotle described human beings as the social animal. God actually designed us, let's not miss this, God actually designed us to, for the good of relationships. So it's not all bad that you're mindful of what other people think of you. It only becomes problematic when this social impulse moves from connection to disconnection. And that starts to happen when we do things simply for public display. The reason, one reason why virtue signaling is so problematic is because it tends to lack actual virtue, right? It doesn't actually have real virtue. Virtue, unlike morality, isn't just about doing certain things. It's about lining up your internal and external worlds, right? And Christian virtue is not interested in simple external conformity. Christian virtue is interested in wholeness and love. Jesus cares not simply with morality and social conformity. He actually cares about virtue. And that's why, and this is a big surprise, part of the surprise in the ancient world, he stresses motives in a way that's fairly uncomfortable, but now we all assume it. But your motives actually mattered. Now let's think about this. We, and this includes me, we love other people's praise. But here's the thing, it's so, and some of you know exactly what I'm saying, it is so fragile. It's so inconsistent. It's so unstable. Let's not overreact. All praise is not bad. Let's not, let's not pretend that's the case. It's not bad for a, for a parent to praise a child for that child's kindness. It's not bad for an employer to be thankful for an employee and bring acknowledgement to them for their hard work. It's not bad for a friend to delight and express that encouragement to another friend for their generosity or for a spouse to praise the beauty and grace of their loved one. None of that's bad. Praising and appreciating others can't be all bad. In fact, it is meant to be life-giving. I remember years ago having a student, and in her particular case, she grew up with a father who was a very devout Christian, and he was very worried that his daughter would be vain or arrogant about how beautiful she was. Whether or not this exactly corresponds to reality, her experience was, in her memory, she could never think of a time when her father in any way acknowledged her physically. Never acknowledged her looks, her and unintentionally, he was treating her like a disembodied spirit. And interestingly enough, as you can imagine, in that kind of situation, there was this desperate longing to be seen and to be appreciated. So counterintuitively, appropriate praise, this is interesting, appropriate praise actually liberates people to be less self-conscious. It can liberate you to be less self-conscious. But the complete absence of praise, like in this dad situation, or 
unhealthy praise, like the praise of a seducer or celebrity culture, those kind of praises often make us more painfully self-conscious rather than less. The problem is we start to use other people to meet our deepest needs and longings, to help us deal with our insecurities, and the result in almost all circumstances is the cultivation of a divided self. But we need encouragement. We need to seem to be seen, to be beheld, to be praised. In this performance of life, we honestly need to ask, and I just want you to ask in your own heart, who do you most want to please? Who is it? Is it a parent? Is it a professor? Is it a friend? Is it a girlfriend or boyfriend? Who is it? Because Jesus indicates that the path to freedom and wholeness comes when you stop performing for other people as the end goal and start living more alert to his gracious gaze, the gaze of an attentive and loving father. So we need to talk about rewards. Prize. For what do you long? Rewards? I mean, covenant's reformed, right? We don't believe in rewards. Is Catholic giving up grace? We need to actually talk about this, right? What is assumed here in the text when God warns against doing your good deeds as a show for other people, right? Listen, from the, from the get-go in 6.1, then you will have your reward from your Father who is in heaven. That means what? God gives, quote-unquote, rewards. After encouraging sacrificial giving in secret, Jesus goes on, and your Father who sees what's done in secret will, in verse 4, reward you. After encouraging them toward private prayer and hidden fasting, he says the same thing. It's interesting because despite a positive response, or, or, or let me put it this way, Desiring a positive response from your actions, listen to me, is not bad. You're actually made to desire appropriate, healthy responses. But in our fallen world, that makes things super complicated. Our reward, we're, we're going to seek rewards. The question is, do we have the right one? And you will get rewarded. John Chrysostom in the early church, listen to how he puts it on this passage. Your inner will cannot be hid. You want to know what your will is? He says this. This is why Jesus doesn't say they shall not receive a reward, but they've received their reward already. Their reward comes from those for whom they themselves most desire to get it. Who, whose pleasure, whose delight, Whose approval do we most long for? So I want to take you through a pretty complicated idea in a very brief time, but it's very important. Because Christianity has something very distinctive to say about gift or grace. In Greek, it's the same word, gift and grace, are the same word, same concept. And, and part of what's going on here in the background will help us understand this passage. So here's the, here's the deal. In the ancient world, and much of the world to this day, 
gift giving is circular in orientation. So the idea is I give you a gift and then what do you expect? They're going to give me back a gift, right? That's how cultures kind of function. And that, that, that basically, that reciprocal relationship of gift giving or grace, gift giving, means I give to you and now you give back to me. Unless you think that's all bad, that's actually the way the fabric of cultures tends to work, right? But the problem with that in the ancient world and in our world is those gift-giving, which with expectation of return, now can be manipulated. This is why, some, have you ever had an experience where someone wants to give you a gift and you're like, no thanks? Because you don't want to be in their debt. And they're like, no, this is for you. Right? So the good part about it is it builds relationships. The bad part is it can be manipulated. In contemporary Western philosophy including in a lot of Protestant circles, in reaction to the understanding of gift and grace being circular, the idea was, no, 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 a real gift is linear. It goes one way. And in fact, you, when you move into the 20th century, with Derrida, Derrida says, the only good and pure, perfect gift is a gift from someone you don't even know who it's from. Because then you have no debt. And what's interesting is this linear approach to gift giving basically shapes so many of our homes, our work, the way we think of even Christianity. But the problem with the linear approach is when you receive a gift, you have no expectation of response. The problem with the linear approach is not that you expect too much, it's that you expect too little. The first approach breeds this unhealthy transactional thing I give in order to get and that fosters manipulation but the second that you and I have inherited undermines ongoing relationships and community just so you know when your parents give you a gift they don't want you to scurry off and never acknowledge it the fact that they want you to delight in the gift and to use the gift doesn't make them bad parents it's called love and relationship. It becomes bad parenting when they use those gifts to manipulate you. So here, Jesus' warnings are not against the expectation of rewards or of response, but against reducing these things to earthly transactions. If the rewards you seek are from others, then you and I are in trouble. When we're driven by the approval of others, it fosters disordered loves in us and unhealthy communities. But when we act in light of God's presence and his promises, it actually starts to foster life-giving love, generous sacri sacrifice, and healthy community. Now here's what's so interesting about this. The circular nature of grace is, or of gift-giving is disrupted by Christianity and the gospel. So that now, gifts can be given with an expectation of response, but not from the one to whom we give it. It's not wrong for you to expect response, but here's why the gospel is so radical. You can give to your enemy because you don't expect them to give you anything, because God will. You don't have to manipulate people. You can give and nobody sees 
because God sees. There is an expectation of response because we have first received the great gift. The gift is Christ himself. The gift of God, his grace, is nothing short of himself. I can give to someone in need now with no expectation of repayment because, as Paul says, he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You remember earlier in this sermon in the Beatitude where Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for what? They'll see God. Do you want to see God? Do you actually want to see God? In an age of virtue signaling and pulling and grabbing for attention in this watching world, it gets very hard to see and to hear God with so much noise. But the pure in heart can and do see God. And seeing and hearing God is the great reward. You want to become pure in heart? Live with God as your audience. Live before His compassionate eyes, His kind smile, and His holy love. And interestingly enough, this reward, which is nothing short of God Himself, actually has earthly benefits. Like you start to live as a less divided self. You start to have the freedom to be for others even when they're not for you. So let me conclude by talking about practices. How can I seek wholeness? I think sometimes in the Reformed community, we ourselves can be guilty of misunderstanding grace, as if grace means that our actions and our agencies don't matter. But you heard the text, right? Listen, to, I mean, the words are in red, so you got it. They're real serious, right? Jesus says, when you give, not if, when you give, pray when you fast i don't know what it is but somehow we move from the danger of the pharisees like hey look at how awesome i am to now somehow we take pride and we're like look at how awesome i am i don't even pray or fast or or give to the poor i don't need to do that because of grace you're like i don't think you understand that's not how it works No, no, no. In the Reformed tradition, at our best, and covenant, we stress this, we kind of think there's like a three-legged stool. We talk about doctrine, right? We talk about cultural engagement. And we talk about piety. You lose any one of those legs, and the whole thing collapses. And whether or not you're catching it, this morning, I want us to stress piety. The goal here for Jesus is not the cessation of almsgiving, which is a focus on the materially poor and needy. It's not the cessation of praying. It's not the cessation of fasting, but rather the proper place and orientation of these practices in light of the very gift of God. Each of these are meant to bring our hearts and our actions in line with God. Super quick, almsgiving. Almsgiving reflects God's generosity and it allows us to participate in what he's doing. And as we do, we are reminded how dependent on God we are. Prayer. Prayer reflects God's care for us in his world. 
helping us remember he is our father and we are his children. And by talking to God, we become convinced of his presence, his wisdom, and his work. Does God feel far from you? I know it's crazy. Talk with him. And then what's really crazy is hang out and wait for a response. Fasting, God reflects, this reflects God's ability to meet our deepest needs. And part of what happens in fasting is we get more in touch with our unacknowledged longings and struggling's. Don't misunderstand, fasting is abstaining from a good thing. Food is a gift from God. If you abstain from technology, that's a gift from God. You're abstaining from those things, not because they're bad, but because they're good. And sometimes we need to be reminded to move from the gifts to the giver. And so we fast. Jesus is most definitely not against fasting, prayer, and acts of generosity. And just so you know, this may surprise you, he's not even against doing them in public. I don't have the time to take you through the history of the church. Everyone comments on this, right? But you hear Jesus like, do it in private. Don't even let your left hand. You're like, what? How do, I don't. And some of you who are obsessive compulsive, this is nightmare. I, I mean, I'm like that. My wife and I were talking about it as I prepared for this. She's like, dude, you got weird sometimes on this stuff. But just so you know, in this same sermon, the chapter before, Jesus says, hey, just so you know, let your light shine. And then it goes on to say, by your good works that people will see, right? You think God's against corporate prayer? Or even corporate fat? No, no, no. The point is never about all hit. It is about who is your audience. And sometimes we do need to do things totally in secret in order that in public we might do them rightly. It takes practice. In conclusion, who's your audience? What's your reward? And how do you seek it? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Sisters and brothers, let us resist the pharisaical impulse. Let's learn to spend less time virtue signaling and more time developing an awareness of God's presence. Let's never forget that our goal is deep communion with God and authentic love with our neighbor. The point of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving is to cultivate actual worship of the God who is always at hand, who is near, who is concerned and active. He alone, some of you are doubting this, I get it. I say this from the depths of my heart, but way more importantly than that, I say this from the promise of God's word. He alone can satisfy the longing of your heart. Let's pray. Our God, we live in an age of public consumption. And for many here, they feel like they've lost themselves. It's hard to even know who they are. The divide and confusion between public and private, inner and external, is a mess. I pray that you would meet each of us by your Spirit. Soak us in the great gift of yourself. And convince us that you alone are worthy of being our audience.
Give us the courage to do things in secret that we might see you in public. We pray this in the name of the risen King.